Comrades, friends, lend me your minds, because we're going to be studying an important message tonight, especially at this time in our country's history, especially at this time. It's called The United Front by Georgi Dimitrov. It's a compilation of a book that he wrote on speeches that were given at the Seventh Party, the International, the Common Turn. I believe it was the Seventh. I hope I'm not wrong. 1935, I believe. The book that I have was published originally in England. He was the General Secretary of the Communist International. That's the whole kit and caboodle, the whole thing. It was our answer to the situation in the world capitalist movement. They were organized. This is the way we organized with the common term. Okay, the book is called The United Front. It's, as I said, delivered at the Seventh World Congress of the Common Term. And I think it's very important because it definitely concerns what we're going through in this country now. I want to read something that has come out over the Internet by, I think his first name is Christopher Algy. Algy. He was during my lifetime. He worked with the Central Intelligence Agency, like many people did, and he defected during the period of the Vietnam War and after. A lot of them did. And what he did is he actually saw from the inside how imperialism operates. So that's what he did. He turned the coats on them, and he turned around and began exposing everything that the CIA, the NSA did from the inside. I don't have the report in front of me, unfortunately, so I'm going to paraphrase what he said. And it's why I think it's very apropos. He said this is the first time in his lifetime, and he was through Kennedy, he was through Ronald Reagan, and all the rest of them. This is the first time in his life that he sees the objective situation differently than it has been the past 60 years. I read it very carefully. It made total sense to me. I remember what Marx said, that the reality changes our tactic, the reality changes our strategy, and the reality changes even what we call the truth. So what was true today or yesterday may not be true tomorrow. Because the reality changes, and reality gives us the truth. So I'm going to go quickly with this. And it concerns the elections that we're going to be going through in about 45 days, or less than that. According to Philip Agee and a lot of other people, the reality is different now. We have never reached anything like this before in our country's history. And therefore, we have to look at things differently. And when I saw that, he quotes Georgi Dimitrov. He quotes Georgi Dimitrov. And so I felt that this is very apropos on what we're doing today. So let me give you the class background. In 1922, the Soviet Union was formed. The revolution went through its period of civil war between the white forces who supported the Tsar and the aristocracy and the red forces who supported the new Soviet Republic. It ended in 24. The government of the Soviet Union went through a period where they were devastated. They economically did things that they would never have done before they took power, but because the situation was, they set up something called the NEP, New Economic Policy, which lasted a very short time. Among other things they did was set up the Communist International, the Comintern which was the third international. Why do we call it the third? 
The first one was set up by Engels and Mark in the 1800s called the First Workingmen's Association. That was the first international. The second international was done in the early 1900s, which we call the Socialist International. It was the group of social democratic parties that followed Marx and Engels. They were later called Social Democrats. Many of them were correctly called Social Fascists. We read that the history of Social Fascism, what it means, in one of our classes before. The situation is this. When the International was set up in 24, or those or 22, 24, between that period, every Communist Party had a representative there. The base was Moscow, because let's be honest, Moscow was the first workers and peasants capital of a major city in the world because of the revolution in 1917 being successful. So every Communist Party had a, a delegate there, including the American Party, which was founded in 1919. From the period of 1919 to the 20s, many people historically called that period the early period of the communist movement. Some people went as far as to call it the sectarian period because our positions were that we cannot trust or work with social democrats because they basically lead us to supporting capitalism. And that was our position all during the 20s. Even though 22 was the beginning of fascism in Italy with Mussolini, and then 32, officially, the Nazis came into power in Germany. So now fascism is spreading. Our tactics took years in order to we accommodated ourselves to the new situation. The common turn, the third period of the common turn, which was the period we're going to discuss in this book, we said that now fascism was going to rise. We had to change our tactics and our strategy. That's what this book is about. Remember what the early period of the Bolshevik movement was and what happened during the period of working with social democrats and social democracy. So the same philosophy that was responsible for the murder of Karl Liebknecht in Germany and Rosa Luxemburg in Germany, they were the two early leaders of the Communist Party in Germany. So this background that I'm giving you is very apropos to what we're going to be talking about. So the line of the international movement changed. And the line changed because the reality changed. Not for any other reason. That's why the line changed. We had a new situation, a different situation that we didn't have before. Last week we talked about what fascism was. This week we're going to talk about the change in the line and what the line was. Okay, let me just find it. Comrades, this is on page 26 of the copy I have, which was put out by the party. Comrades, millions, millions of working people in the capitalist countries are asking the question, how can fascism be prevented from coming to power? And how can fascism be overthrown? After it has attained state power. To this, the Comintern, which are all the communist parties, replies, 
The first thing that must be done, the thing with which to begin, is to form a united front, to establish unity of action of the workers in every factory, in every district, in every region, in every country. In fact, all over the world. Unity of action of workers on a national and international level is the mighty weapon which renders our working class capable not only of a successful defense, that's the key word, defense, but also a successful counterattack against fascism, against the class enemy. What is a united front? Many people don't understand that. Well, in our history, we had two forms of working together. One was the united front, and the other was the popular front. And I'll explain the difference between the two and then open up the question. The united front was a method of work where all the parties that represent different areas of the working class, not ideologically on the same page, but all the working class, those parties were to come together. That meant in Germany and in other places, social democratic leadership of the trade union movement, communist leadership of some of the workers' organizations, that we had to now be on the same side, officially, on the same side against fascism. Up until that point, during the 20s, we, in our party, in Germany, were working against fascism. The social democratic leadership was saying that they're working against fascism their way. But we were not together shoulder to shoulder. So outside of the forces, the anti-fascist side was divided. Plain and simple. Even though the leadership of social democrats cannot be trusted, the rank and file, we have to look at them as legitimate members of the working class. It's our job to educate them, not to shun them. The leadership is one thing, the rank and file is another. So that's what the United Front is. All the workers' parties or parties representing the working class on one side against fascism. The other question, what is the Popular Front? The Popular Front takes the United Front and goes a step further of inclusion. It now includes sections of the middle class and sections of the bourgeoisie who are, for whatever reason, anti-fascist. For whatever their class reason, they're anti-fascist. So in the Popular Front, we work with sections of other classes besides the working class, in a united front against fascism, so that we are together and the fascists are basically isolated among themselves. Now I'm going to stop right there. I hope this introduction was clarifying things to people. From my, my own readings and as well as discussions regarding the history with other comrades, it seems as though Trotsky has been criticized a lot for working with imperialists, and that's a broad, I guess. Imperialists includes neoliberals, fascists, whatnot. But how is our criticism of Trotsky working with fascists and imperialists different than us working with liberals that are against fascists? I'll try to paraphrase the question. How is it different, or is it different, for us to work with 
other classes against fascism, how is that not the same or is it the same as Trotskyite forces working with fascism as they did in Italy? Is that what your question is? It's not just limited to fascists. It's also Trotsky working with imperialists, like going testify before Congress or the Senate. And he worked with fascists and imperialists. You could put them under the same umbrella, but he didn't just work with fascists. He worked with other people that were anti-communist. I think that it's different to work with liberals, specifically being united against fascists versus Trotsky's working with imperialists and fascists and other things like that because we are working with them specifically towards the goal of defeating what would be recognized as a greater evil than just merely liberalism and stopping the movement of fascists versus Trotsky was, I'm honestly not super informed on precisely why Trotsky worked with imperialists and fascists, but he wasn't working against such an imminent threat as fascism in Europe in the 30s. Okay, thank you. My take is a little different. Who was the head of the communist movement at this time? Comrade Stalin, just to make it quicker, expedient. It was Comrade Stalin. I think most of the people in our party, maybe 99%, 99.9, understand the genius of not only the Bolshevik leadership, but specifically of Comrade Stalin and Comrade Lenin. Comrade Lenin was not around at this point. He had passed, but Comrade Stalin was around. And under the guidance, is the best way I can put it, of Comrade Stalin, this was what all the communists in the planet at the time have decided upon. Therefore, that seems to be a good answer to me to see the difference in what you said, Comrade. That's the big difference. That should be the demarcation, as Lenin would say, the line of demarcation. We could question everything, every minute of the day, every day, but there has to be a point where we go beyond the questioning. And we now take what the leadership is saying and follow that. I think that's the best answer to give you. It was a different situation, qualitatively different. I wanted to just quickly ask about, remember the old German unity movement, Antifasciste? Is that the type of thing that... We're kind of looking for something similar to that, what they had in Germany at the time when they're combating against the fascists. You're talking about the group called Antifa. That's yeah, what that's, it was called yeah. in Germany in the 20s. Not to be confused with the group that calls itself Antifa today. The Antifa that the party had in Germany was during the 20s. That is not what the common term position was saying. Definitely not. The Antifa was set up by the German Communist Party, the KPD. That's the abbreviations, Communist Party of Germany. And it was set up as a self-defense force, not as an attack force. Their job was not to fight fascists in the street. I want to correct that. If people have that misunderstanding, I don't know where they got it from. But they did not fight fascists in the street. They defended the Communist Party legal rallies. And the trade union legal rallies, they defended them physically from fascist stormtroopers and brown shirts, as we call them. Not the stormtroopers, the brown shirts. And they broke up the rallies physically, and it was Antifa who protected them. And that was a physical thing. 
So, no, it's not what we're talking about now, definitely not. We're talking about all kinds of unity, not just fighting in the streets against the fascists, but also electoral. That's the difference. This was also an electoral front. And that's what the United Front was in all the countries of Europe. So my question has to do with the internationals. How many years passed between each international? Was there prescribed that number of years, or did they just were they organized according to the need? So, for example, there was the first, second, and third internationals. Between the first and the second internationals, how many years were there? And well, between, the first and international was the late 1800s. The second international, unless somebody knows more information than me on that, you can correct me. The Second International was in the early 1900s, and the Third International was after the Bolshevik Revolution, 1922, 1924, something like that. The Second International was actually created in late 1800s, so 1889 to be exact, so there's actually 11 years in the Okay, uh, thank you. Thank you, comrade. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Just curious. Thank you. I think the fundamental problems of world history right now is the transatlantic, tremendous social, economic, cultural crisis, the bank crisis, and South Africa totally in the level of bankruptcy. Given the global situation, the rise of Asia, even with free enterprise system and using Confucian philosophy and win-win situation and stuff, they, they are expanding throughout Africa, Asia, Latin America, and also, the linkage of the Russian Federation with this phenomenon in history is becoming a for tremendous universal challenge to transatlantic decay and collapse, including the working class, the labor aristocracy. And so the United Front must be seen in this context. And I think unless the transatlantic working class wakes up, okay, it's going to be like dustbin of history because that is the class historical vanguard to emancipate and liberate transatlantic civilization from total collapse from dark ages, given the reality of our times. Okay, thank you, Comrade. Remember, the name of this book is The United Front, The Struggle Against Fascism and War. Remember the name of the book that we're talking about tonight. It was mentioned that there's a distinction between the middle class and the working class to draw a distinction between the popular and the united front. Not exactly sure what the difference is between those two classes. Okay, that's another whole night. We can't go into that right now. Marx (laughs) makes it clear who they are. The working class is divided into the proletariat, which is factory workers, basic industrial workers, and other members of the working class. The middle class is another word for small capitalists, according to Marx and all the other European thinkers. They're totally different. Their connection with the means of production is different. One is involved with the means of production. So that issue will go into another class. I'm sorry, comrade. To clarify, it's talking about a popular front between any parties, anyone against the fascist opposition, and that could include social democrats, correct? Yeah, that was my bringing that subject, popular front, into tonight's class. That is not what the book is about. The book is about the united front. That's what the book is about, the united front, not the popular front. 
We can do that at another class, but tonight is just the United Front. I only wanted that clarification just because I know that the popular front had been thrown out, and so I wanted to make sure I got all of my definitions straight as we continue through this passage. Okay, thank you, Comrade. Back to the communist Dimitrov, one of Stalin's right-hand people, by the way. I believe this is the difference between, in my opinion, between a Bolshevik way of working and an ultra-left way of working. And Stalin was not an ultra-leftist. He methodically analyzed everything scientifically with the studies of Lenin, and that's why we came to this position. In the book, Significance of the United Front, page 26 on my copy, is it not clear that joint action by the supporters of the parties and the organizations of the two TWO, of the two internationals, the Communist International and the Second International, would make it easier for masses of people to repulse, to stop the fascist onslaught and would heighten the political importance of the working class. Joint action by the parties of both internationals against fascism. Now notice he said joint in action means together. However, would not be confined in its effects just to influence the present adherence of these parties. The communists on one hand and the social democrats on the other. It would also exert a powerful impact on the ranks of Catholic, trade unionists, anarchists, and unorganized workers, even upon those who have temporarily become the victims of fascist demagogy. Now, some people told me, but isn't that opposite of what we did two weeks ago when we talked about social fascism? Yeah, it is the opposite. But this is all the leaders of the Communist Party came together and strategized on this. This wasn't one person pushing a line that other people accepted, that the line could be correct or incorrect. This was a collaborated effort, if you want to use the term collective effort. And this is what they came out with. Let's look historically if was successful. I think it was definitely successful. Let's go back and look at what happened. When we started to have a united front, the quickness of fascism rising, look at it, was slowed down considerably. The other thing is that the table started to change. What do you call the cooperation between the great Soviet Union we call it the Great Soviet Union as Bolshevik, as adherents of the Soviet Union. That's what we call it. How do you explain the working together between the capitalist America, capitalist England, and the socialist Soviet Union? The only way you could explain it, understandably to our minds today, is to see it was an international effort of carrying through a popular front strategy. That's all it was. Did it work? Well, we're not speaking German today, comrades. Remember that. And we're not speaking Germany because that collaborative effort did succeed. After the war, 1945, that's another whole subject of what happened. 
capitalism in the West went back to its normal way of working. And that was the beginning of the Cold War, what we call the Cold War. So I'm going to continue from the book. This is about a united front, a powerful united front of the workers that exert tremendous influence on all of the strata of people, including the peasantry, including the petty bourgeoisie in the cities, including the intelligentsia. A united front would inspire, that's the key word, inspire the waving groups, those who are on the fence, with faith in the strength of the working class. But even this is not all it would do. The working class of the imperialist countries has possible allies, not only in the working class of other countries, but also in the oppressed nations, in the colonies, in the semi-colonies. Insomuch as the workers is split both nationally and internationally, insomuch as one of its parts supports the policy of collaboration with the bourgeoisie, which is the social democracy, in particular its system of oppression of the colonies and semi-colonies. A barrier, a wall is put between the working class and the oppressed peoples of the colonies and the world on one side and the world anti-imperialist front is weakened. Think about it. When we pit American workers against the workers of other countries, has that increased our power as a working class or decreased it? Every step by the workers of the imperialist countries on the road to unity of action in the direction of supporting the struggle for the liberation of colonial people, that means transforming the colonies themselves and semi-colonies into one of the most important reserves of the world proletariat. Let's look at what happened in history. That's exactly what happened in history. Think about it. After World War II, the period of uprising of the colonial peoples in India and in other countries, including China, began. 49 was the revolution in China, the first one since the 1917 one. There was a revolutionary movement led by non-communist forces in India against British colonialism. Remember that. So this is written in 35, 36. It's prophetic. It's telling me the future because that's exactly what happened. If finally... We bear in mind, I'm reading from the book, that international unity of action by the workers relies on the steady growing strength of the proletarian state, which is the Soviet Union. We see what broad perspectives are revealed by the realization of proletarian unity on a national and international scale. Again, let's go back and see what happened. That alliance on an international level between the Soviet Union and the Western capitalist countries, that that short alliance against fascism, which is in reality a popular front, does that help build up the socialist states or did it 
make it less? Well, let's look at history. After the war, you had, instead of one socialist country, you had four or five or six or seven others. In 1949, you had China. So this policy that Stalin strategized over at the head of the Comintern was correct. History proves it correct. And no amount of looking at it any other way can say anything else but that. The chief arguments, and I'm going to end it here tonight, the chief arguments of the opponents of the United Front, there are those today in our country who oppose the United Front. I hear them in the left all the time. I hear people oppose the Popular Front over the issue of sacrificing our principles, not understanding Marx at all, that what was true yesterday may not be true today. In 1938, the Soviet Union was calling for collective security against fascist Germany. In 1939, what happened? The Soviet Union realized that we weren't going to get any alliances with the West at that time. So they formed a non-aggression pact with Germany. You don't attack us, we won't attack you. That's what a non-aggression means. It doesn't mean an alliance. It doesn't mean we're friends. It means you don't attack me, I don't attack you. And we sign our name on the line. That's exactly what non-aggression means. Imagine why the people that yelled and screamed in 39, as a historian of the party, I remember this. Loads of communists left the communist movement internationally. They thought the Soviet Union betrayed them. Soviet Union did not betray them. The Soviet Union saw that the situation was so detrimentally close to destruction that they had to find time to build a temporary alliance against fascist Germany. They knew that it was going to be an attack. Everybody knew that. The job was to try to prevent it and drag it on to the future. So I'm going to stop right then and there and read this key argument. This is from the side of social democrats. Social democracy is for democracy, they claim. Communists are for dictatorship. Therefore, we cannot form a united front with the communists. That's what some of the social democratic leaders told their followers. But are we offering you now a united front for the purpose of proclaiming the dictatorship of the proletariat? Are we pushing that in this attempt to form an alliance with you? Are we saying that you have to support dictatorship proletariat? No. We make no such proposal now. That's straight from the book. So I'm going to open up to questions now. I hope that tonight's discussion made you look at the world differently, more as a Bolshevik and less as an independent radical, but more as a Bolshevik. And I know tonight's class is going to put seeds in people's minds. I just know it. They're going to get confused. They're going to be totally confused. And I think that confusion is understandable being brought up in this country and not looking at it as a Bolshevik would look at it. But more or less, we look at things as people who are upset with what's going on around us. We want to see a change. We really don't understand Marxism-Leninism. It's a new ideology for us. So I know that's going to happen tonight.
the thing about this is that there is something called realpolitik. We do attribute romantic narratives to things, but there, I mean, there is reality. The Soviet Union did open up their military bases, like German military experimentation. They did make non-aggression back. But they did that in order to get an edge. They did that in order to survive. I don't really know a better way to put it than that. I mean, other European powers at the time didn't make treaties with them. American business corporations supported the Nazis. You know, there is realpolitik, where we, we make things look all rosy, but there is a reality that we have to come back to. If the choice is help somebody you hate and survive, or don't do it and all of your people die, for instance, that German military experimentation thing, tank, where they had armored experiments, that gave the Soviet Union an edge that they were able to use to fight the Nazis. So, you know, sometimes you have to take the rosy goggles off and look at reality. Thank you. That's all I had to say. Thank you. One thing that kind of struck me when we were reading this was talking about the potential for the international proletariat, right? A unity of the proletariat both within our country and around the world. And I'm looking at, like, something like the coronavirus, which has shown other countries, like he was saying, colonized or semi-colonized, countries as diverse as China and Iran and Italy working together, as well as many others who share and help resources. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of fear-mongering around China right now. It's the closest thing we have to the Soviet Union, and we can talk about that for hours. But we're seeing like this drive to look out for each other in other places, and maybe that's scaring some of our imperialist forces. Maybe that's scaring the ones who are going to bring us to fashion. Okay, thank you. Angela mentioned the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and that is something that's used by anti-communists to sort of smear the history of the Soviet Union and the history of anti-fascism as equating the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. And I just want to let people know that Blood Lies by Grover Fur. Chapter 7 of the book goes into great detail about how the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was not an alliance of any sort, as Angelo noted, and how the Soviet Union in reality had to prevent Nazi Germany from preemptively, essentially walking right up to the Soviet border and invading the Soviet Union at an earlier time, which, as we know, since they got so close to Moscow, that could have been a matter. Stalin essentially was buying time, so I just wanted to add those comments on the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Thank you, Comrade, and I urge people to go out and get books by Grover Fur. Blood Lies, the one that was referring to, is one of the better books I think he did. He wrote Khrushchev Lies, which was his first book. He wrote books on Trotsky's aneurysms. And, uh, he wrote a whole mess of stuff, but this one I find the most easiest to read, Blood Lies, which is a refutation of the analysis of the Soviet foreign policy before the war by this, I think he's from Harvard. Yeah, his name uh, is Timothy Schneider. Timothy Schneider, thank you. I urge people to get a hold of that book. Maybe we covered this earlier and I just missed it, but the way I'm seeing it, we, we have no other choice on the United Front. If fascism truly takes hold there, I'm trying to grapple with how we could possibly... It if the U.S. descends into a full fascist state, 
with where technology is today with surveillance and all that, we will pretty much be done for if that happens. The only thing that really stopped in World War II was the World War. And with the rise of nationalism, fascism in Europe, even in Brazil, who knows if there'll even be that chance. But after it takes hold, how could we even stop it after that point? Good point. Good point. Thank you. The entire analysis, the content, the spirit of commerce in PC USA is reflected the requirements of the times within a very broad concept of a united front. But the whole issue is that to come up with practical achievements against imperialism. So when it comes to that, we have a long way to go because it's reality. I mean, we are not, uh, the whole country is not united around the concept of PCUSA, trade unions, the, the intelligentsia, the two-party system and stuff. So it's a, it's a very delicate situation in history. So we have to struggle harder and work harder and get politically sharper. We have to sharpen our weapon of theory because the theory determines history, not like aspirations, sentiments, and stuff like that. So that is my position. Okay, thank you. I think as far as America is concerned and the revival of neo-fascism, it appears to me that if the United States was to go down the road of fascism, it would likely split the Union, and by the Union I mean the United States, and if we did split them, split up America, it would play out a lot different than it did in the Civil War, because almost every state has nuclear capabilities. That's all I'd like to say. Thank you. Next. I think it's very important now in America in 2020. When we look at the history of leftist parties in America, a lot of them either wither away out of complete burnout, or they turn into a literal shadow of the former selves. So I think that with this party, we at least have a lens to see how a wit might proceed to help the working class. Thank you. So I think when we're considering the party's position on the United Front and how it would be able to organize one, I think it's important to recognize class composition of the party itself and the requirements of basing the United Front on proletarian elements. I feel like we have a lot of work to do on that front. Thank you. You're correct, Cameron. I think that the idea of having an, any type of united front against fascism is ultimately what we as a party need to be doing, at least, to, or just, just talking about in general as history, the cogs of history are moving again, and we as a party kind of need to be thinking about what's going on in the future. Thanks for class. Thank you. The context of when this is being written continues to stand out to me, especially given that right now we are working within the imperial core within where it is most likely that fascism will arise, whereas this is being written from a country defending itself from the rise of fascism. I don't know. I continue to be interested in applying theory, and so this is a great class, and I look forward to more classes like this. Thank you. I just wanted to add that I really appreciated Dimitrov's point on how a united front would inspire certain wavering groups, such as unorganized workers, victims of a fascist demagogy, as he mentioned, would inspire them to have more faith in the strength of the working class. 
but I would also add that we should include the lumpen proletariat in there, those people who are unemployed or incarcerated and cannot work for those reasons. I think they would be very helpful in the anti-fascist cause. Thank you. Thank you. Great class. One of the big things that I took away from, from today as opposed to the last class is that, Angelo, you had brought up that we actually came out a lot stronger post-World War II. We went from one socialist country to five or six. And so if I had to offer anything, we shouldn't look at this from a Doomer perspective, but we should instead look at this as an opportunity as long as we play on the offensive. We have the benefit of having the science of Marxism on our side. And if we're going to play a united front, we should do what we can to unify under our ideology so that way we come out stronger from this. Good point. Good point. Thank you. I want to remind everybody, this was done under the direction of Karmite Stalin. That has to be kept in everybody's mind. Well, it's a great class tonight, and I think the main thing that I'm going to take away is the notion of trying to build those alliances with parts of the working class that aren't thinking along the lines of opposing fascism at the moment, but we need to be ready to reach out to them when it does so that we can kind of build up a strong anti-fascist movement with the workers and with those who are going to be affected by it, who are always going to be the best fighters against fascism. Great class as always. Good point. Good point. I just had a quick anecdote to relate fascism in Nazi Germany to today. My grandpa was a Holocaust survivor. My grandma still plays bridge with many Holocaust survivors who were alive in Germany during the rise of the Nazi party. And today, in recent weeks, was on a call with her, and she was saying how they felt very frightened in the recent years due to the recent presidency and the Republican Party and kind of drew the similarity rhetoric that's been thrown around by the president and by far right and was relating it to how they felt during the time of Nazi Germany and Hitler. Yeah, that was my take on it, comrade. My take is strictly that. It's the same terminology that's scary. The same terminology. I mentioned it at the last class. Got to get a hold of the movie. Judgment at Nuremberg. Write this down. Judgment at Nuremberg. Burt Lancaster, Spencer Tracy, list of famous actors. It's in black and white. It was takes place in Nuremberg after the war in 1945. And it deals with the jurors who were appointed by the Nazi state to sit in black robes and judge people. Got to get a hold of that movie. It was written by a, a progressive direct. It was done by a progressive direct. But in that, I'm going to give you the quote. What were the times we were on? Here's a quote that was given by one of the judges. We were told that there are traitors among us, gypsies, Jews, communists, homosexuals. This is what he says in this movie. Okay? How come we didn't say anything? He said every town in Germany had a railway station that went from them to a concentration camp. He said, how could we have not known this? Were we deaf? Were we dumb? Were we blind? And that shears in my mind when I look around today. A few people already iterated what I feel too. We need our party's position 
stated in regards to what is considered at least a working united front and a working popular front for the current situation. There's lots of discussion on Discord on this too. And I think this would help us really formulate an effort to make this work. The other takeaway point I got from this, from Dimitrov, was this is an international situation. And we have to realize that and we have to make sure any united front or popular front captures the international flavor. Thank you very much. I just wanted to say, insofar as who we would create a hypothetical united front with, which is a question which a previous comrade asked here, I think we have the perfect example going on currently in Vermont. Comrade Chris, a man who has a degree in Marxist-Leninist studies from China, who fought ISIS, Daesh, in Syria as a socialist volunteer, is running for Congress in Vermont, is making inroads with making a united front, coming together with PSL, gathering their resources and working together. The PSL is the Party of Socialism and Liberation, by the way. They're not explicitly Marxist-Leninists, but they're still relatively socialist. When we say coming together, we're not talking about joining parties or something. We're just teaming up to fight for a better world. I think in some hypothetical future revolution where multiple factions have control over different regions of this country, we would do what the Soviet Union did. Rather than some romantic concept, we would buy time. We would be making deals to sell resources to people we don't like in order to get better resources or make pact with, you know, for instance, the fascists in order to consolidate territories, resources, and etc. Basically, we need to learn from the past rather than just ridicule it. Learn from our ancestors. Remember where this is coming from. I don't want anybody to separate Dimitrov from the Bolshevik movement. We must not, N.O.T., confine ourselves to bare appeals to struggle for the proletarian dictatorship. He makes it very clear. We must find and advance those slogans and forms of struggle which arise from the vital needs, the vital needs of the masses, from the level of their fighting capacity at the present, not the past, not the future, at the present stage of development. We must point out to the masses, which means to the people, what they must do today, now, to defend themselves against not only capitalist violation, but fascist barbarity. Again, once again, Comrade Dimitrov and Comrade Stalin are saying, wake up, smell the coffee, do not sit and theorize, look at what's going on right now, that's what he's saying, and deal with it. 